Hello, everyone. Welcome to the MCC. I'm your host, Isaac Mack. Joining me today is Mr. Fadi Johanna. Fadi is an epidemiologist who received his master's degree at the University of Hawaii. He studied centered on how the wars in Iraq affected people's health and education. Recently, he's been working on the solutions for people affected by COVID-19 through the public health sector. Fadi left Iraq when he was just a young boy and now resides in Colorado where he's doing his PhD. Early in his studies, he received a scholarship to do his bachelor's in both biology and journalism. He wrote articles for the local Hawaiian newspaper while teaching and lecturing. He has a long resume and a long list of achievements, which is why we're very happy to have him on the show. So Fadi, welcome my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you. Very humbled to be on here, given your incredible list of guests. Uh, very humbled to be in the same breath. It's a pleasure to have you, man. Like uh, I, uh, it's as I said to you when I contacted you, you were, you were on the list. So yeah, it's it's absolute pleasure to have you on. Definitely a highlight in a in a year of difficulty. I appreciate it. So you've pretty much uh, grown up in Hawaii and experienced the island the island life, as they call mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Um, and you've recently moved to Colorado. How's that, how's that change been for you now that you're in the big US of A? Yeah, you know, moving from Iraq to Hawaii was a bit challenging because you're learning a new culture, you're learning a new language, you don't know anyone there. But luckily, and you've experienced this because you visited the island, the spirit, the welcoming nature, the friendliness uh, of the people there was a huge advantage to, to myself and my family we were able to set our roots and grow and mature and embed ourselves in the culture uh, and the lifestyle. Um, We were very lucky to land there, picked up friends that I'll consider friends for a lifetime, met my wife there, very lucky to be there. But moving to Colorado has been very interesting because we're right next to the mountains. It snows here, definitely Mm -hmm. then going to the beach uh, when it's 10, 15, 20 minutes away. But it does remind me very much to the environment that um, my father and where I was born in Iraq, uh, because we're very close to the mountains. You mm. see eucalyptus trees, you see evergreens, you see uh, deer, squirrels, bunnies. Uh, so it's it's very similar to that, much much closer than Hawaii. But uh, moving from Iraq to Hawaii was incredible. Yeah. How old were you again when you moved? Uh, I was 11, 12. I was just uh, entering middle school, uh, junior high. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. And it's been a very eventful, like, uh, 12 to 18 months for you. I mean, you getting married to your lovely wife, Maggie, um, you know, moving from Hawaii and also working on COVID on, on the front line. Um, tell us all about it. Like, it's pretty hectic. Yeah. You know, nothing uh, forces you to mature faster than uh, having your first job, you know, first uh, sort of a career job. Uh, had multiple jobs before, but uh, moving here, buying a car, your own car for the first time, uh, settling on a house, uh, deciding yeah. to create. It forces you to mature real quick. Uh, it, it is very exciting. I love that feeling. Uh, I love the feeling of responsibility. Uh, I'm, I'm a PhD candidate, so I'm working on my dissertation. And I had thought that working for the local public health department was a good way to get field experience because coming from an academia background, you understand and learn a lot about the theoretical nature of epidemiology and public health, but you don't have much field work. So I thought this was a nice opportunity. And then March hit and COVID hit. So it's been, it's been a really, really uh, interesting and intellectually challenging time. Uh, as you know, COVID is a novel virus. It's new. Nobody, uh, nobody's an expert in it. 
Mm. So you're sort of trying to fly a plane and learn how to fly a plane and land a plane at the same time. Yeah. Uh, best you can do is just to be, be transparent, uh, be, be ethical and be true to your, to your uh, standards. And um, both you and your wife have worked on it. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. What, what have you guys specifically done? Like, could you mind explaining? Sure. Uh, my job specifically, I'm an applied epidemiologist. Uh, my job specifically deals with uh, data. So yeah. I take large amounts of data and we help visualize it. Now that's, that's for COVID. Uh, what we also do is we try to investigate patterns uh, mm. to pick up some tendencies. So uh, for example, we try to understand the holistic nature of the impact of COVID. So we, we talk to those that may have um, had therapy before COVID and they have to continue their therapy during COVID. How mm. does that impact going from an in-person therapy to a virtual therapy? What does that do mm. to the process? So it's beyond just capturing the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations. Uh, my job with COVID specifically involves uh, a holistic picture, you know, mm. unemployment, the impact of it on behavioral health, uh, mental health, uh, the uh, impact on education. Uh, it's very complex, um, but it, it all starts with, with the data. Yeah, and, and basically you're seeing how it impacts basically their life as a whole, is that fair to say? Absolutely, I mean, anybody who is working in this field understands that uh, the virus impacts an individual beyond the illness. The illness is the something that we can do something about right away, mm. uh, but there are short-term and long-term impacts of this thing that are yet to be fully understood. Uh, and we're trying to catch that right now as we're trying to prevent the illness as well. Well, it gives me a bit of peace of mind to hear that, you know, people like yourself are doing that because, you know, it's something that I've been advocating for a while that the media don't talk about at all. Um, the government's really, in a, I don't know, in America, but in Australia, they don't talk about that at all. They don't talk about the impact on mental health, on, you know, whether it's domestic violence, just people's general state of being. They don't really talk about that. They just talk about COVID cases, COVID cases. That's all we're hearing. You know, this many cases, this many cases, but we're not, you know, I, I know through some of the churches that have been, you know, lobbying, um, I suppose, campaigns to bring awareness to more suicide and, you know, depression, all these people, because people have, some people have had their whole careers taken away from them. They've had their whole, the whole world turned upside down. So it gives me a bit of peace of mind to know that, you know, at least you're doing that and there's people out there doing that. Uh, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's, professional mal malpractice to have it as a binary choice, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, you can either buy into one and not the other. Both can exist in the world simultaneously. It can be a very deadly virus that spreads very fast and it can have long-term impact on uh, things other than illness because of COVID. Yeah. Now, for people who don't know, I didn't actually mention this, Fadi is actually my first cousin. <laughs> uh, yeah, on my, on my father's side. So, um, yeah, and we met in Hawaii. Uh, I was actually saying to my wife pretty much four years ago. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, which is crazy because we were in Hawaii in November 2016. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah, my, my wife was, um, nobody knew and she was just newly pregnant and uh, we, would, we were heading off for one of our last holidays before, you know, life changed again for us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've got the little, little, uh, critter now three three-year-old and running around <laughs> so life changed, life yeah. changed. but I, I know when I came to Hawaii uh, and I met you and we started talking and everything 
um, I was quite relieved and pleasantly surprised um, as I got talking to you because, you know, I'm a proud man. Uh, I hold the values of our parents and our culture, you know, really close to me and I'm very proud of what our culture stands for. So I, re I relieved when I, because um, I thought to myself, well, here's a cousin of mine, that, a cousin of mine that I can really connect with. Uh, he respects parents greatly. He holds the values of our culture. He's doing his best to be all he can be. Uh, he's not a sport little brat who uh, has forgotten about his roots and he's, he's, honoring, he's honoring the sacrifice that his parents have made. Because um, I mean, I've met, I think I've seen the good and the bad of people that have actually migrated the first generation here. And you know, some of them, uh, you know, they, I think I was talking to one of the priests, some of them completely forget about their culture and it's like, they don't even want to associate with it. And some of them are staunch, you know, I'm, I'm Iraqi, I'm, I'm Middle Eastern. You know, so they, they either want, they're either like gangsters or they're like people that will fall over with the, when the wind blows. Yeah. Right. Want, want to be gangsters. So, I mean, wh why do you think a lot of these kids who are growing up in Australia or America, um, why do you think that that kind of happens to, I mean, there's, there's. Yeah, it's uh, when we lose that stubbornness to, to, to work hard, it really has uh, a sort of a downfield impact on our lives. One of the things that I truly believe in is that adversity really, really sharpens who you are. Iron sharpers iron. Okay. My dad and your dad, professionally, when they became 18 and older, when they had to choose a career, when they uh, started their journey, they were Christians in, in Iraq. They were always, that always was in their mindset. They faced adversity that we could never equate. Uh, now, you and I both spent some time in Iraq as, as kids, so we, we kind of got a taste of it, but not really, not yeah. to the level that they did. Uh, when they came to the West, to Australia and the US, they already had experienced that, therefore they knew the value of what they have now. Mm. For someone to not experience that, it's when someone is comfortable, when someone is not hit, life hasn't punched them yet in the face. And that doesn't mean that you're on the street and don't have any resources. What I mean by that is you're not actively pursuing failure. You're not actively pursuing falling down so that you don't have the opportunity to get up. Uh, your dad and my dad are, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but they're probably our biggest, biggest heroes. You know, they've yeah. done things with their lives that at the end of our life, if we say, hey, we did the same as they did, we'd be very proud and happy. Great. And that all stems from they knew what they went through and they knew what they have now and they would rather do anything in the world than sacrifice that. Mm. You know, if, if that condition of adversity is not met at a young age or even at a developing age, you don't know what it's like not to have it. Well, well let's talk about that. So if they're done, if they haven't experienced that adversity, I agree with you hundred percent, by the way, if they haven't experienced that, then I suppose some of the things they can do to, you know, get these principles and, and these ethics about them is number one, talk to their parents or people who have gone through this to understand what they, what they have and, and even do their own uh, research in terms of what, uh, yeah. and, and, and I'll add to that, I'll add to that, the parents can, um, I don't mind saying it, they can be a little bit harder. You know, don't raise these snowflakes that are, you know, we came to these countries to, for us to have a better life, for our kids to, better life, to have a better life, but don't raise them like sport little brats. You know, show them that 
um, you just, nothing just comes to you like that. And for our parents to, your dad was one of the first sort of uh, frontier men in the family where he took his family and went to a foreign land. Yeah. Uh, he was an educated man, so he knew a little bit of English, but it's nowhere near <laughs> being a native of that land in order to understand the tendencies. My yeah. dad did the same. Uh, it would be such an insult to them if we waste our lives. Correct. It'd be such an insult to the gamble they took. Well, gamble in the sense that they didn't know what the outcome was, but they knew mm. that the current status is not ideal for their next generation, for their sons and daughters. It'd be much easier for them if they had stayed in Iraq, right? They were accomplished men. Oh, they yeah. knew everybody. They, they loved the culture. They uh, had family roots there. They had to, both men had to get away from family in the sense they leave them behind in order to chase something brighter for their kids. Mm. So, I mean, we really didn't have a choice uh, not to work hard because in, in, to honor their legacy, we can't just let it slip away. Correct. That's, that's such a good point. Because I remember um, I, I, had, I had my father on the show last week, as you know, and, you know, I asked him that question. I said, how did you feel going from living in an eight or nine bedroom house with all your brothers and sisters, your parents, us, all of us being in completely a, an environment where you're comfortable with, where you know, where you're head of, I suppose, even the community there and uh, coming to Australia where you have no contact with anybody and it's just us. It, it's such a, you can't, there's no way you can even imagine that unless you experience it yourself. And then after him, I, I saw him get his PhD, work his butt off, uh, you know, work at nights folding newspapers from, I think it was 10 o'clock at night till five in the morning. He did that for five years while doing his PhD, um, just to put food on the table. And he never, ever complained about being tired. We talked about that. Bingo, exactly. We talked about that because I remember asking him, uh, aren't you tired, Dad? Like, why, you know, you're, you're working this. And I was about probably 12 years old at the time. And he just gave me this look like, because I, I said the word tired, right. like shameful. You know, so seeing that, like, as an example, as you said, they're, they're our heroes for sure. And then from there, I saw his brothers. So he, he worked hard. He got his residency and then he helped his brothers come here. And, and even his brothers were accomplished. You know, they had master's degrees in engineering and whatnot. They come to Australia. Um, their degrees aren't even recognized, even though they were headed departments back there. Yep. They're not even recognized. So here they are going back to university in Brisbane or in, in Australia, getting the same degree. <laughs> But so that's recognized in Australia while they're working in supermarkets and all kinds of jobs, you know, they've had to completely start from zero, humble themselves and then rebuild themselves. And now they're successful engineers and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, that, the sacrifice they made, your, the, what you said is so good in terms of us honoring them, honoring their sacrifice. It'd be pitiful for us just to do nothing and just to be another person in this society uh, and, not, and not stand out. Exactly. And that, that is applied to folks that are second generation or are not immigrants, right? That can be applied to anyone. Uh, the adversity that I was talking about, uh, most adversity, uh, you can kind of prepare yourself for it if you have a plan uh, mm. and you, you can chase it so that it doesn't become adversity, it becomes success. If somebody 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old is working 20 hours a week, right? And it's not, he's not, he or she is not going to a university. They've decided that a degree is not for them. They would rather go into the private sector to kind of make their own way. 
but why not work 30 hours? Why not work 40? Yeah. What, what is the end goal that you're trying to achieve? And are you the biggest reason why you're not getting there? Now, we are lucky because we, um, you know, experience a difficulty, but we're not, um, we're not held back by barriers. My, what I mean by that is we're both physically well, right? We both have both eyes, both ears, both legs, both arms. Yeah. Uh, therefore, the barriers that we, we face may be because of us. And you never want to be the reason why you didn't accomplish something. You want it to be exterior factors. Hey, that person really didn't like me, my color, my ethnicity, uh, my gender, blah, 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 blah. Okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's fair. But if you're the reason why, then figure out why, fix it, move on. Yeah, it was a, a quote I read one time. It said, your life is a, a merciless mirror of you as a human being. Yeah, and and it, and it elaborated from you know it said the car that you drive the clothes that you wear the the people that you know who you hang around with um your relationships all that's a it's a merciless mirror of who you are as a human being um well, let's talk about distractions i mean to follow on from that what do you think are the biggest distractions today that uh, i think prevent people from being all they can be uh i think and you know keep in mind this is all up opining about things so it's not yeah the role of the book is just an experience yep. uh most most of the distractions are manufactured by us mm -hmm. uh we tend to and this is as a gen generalization for all humans we tend to chase the short-term uh validation the short-term sweetness while sacrificing a bigger long-term success uh i tend to and my friends know this and I, i'm a bit of a, a jerk when it comes to this i tend to harp on social media it's one of my biggest pet peeves. It's, uh, it's sort of uh, an armpit of society. It's, it's, it's like chocolate cake for me. It's great uh, at celebrations, but if you eat it every day at excessive amount, you're going to regret it later. Uh, social media is such a wonderful tool for communication. I mean, you and I live in two different continents and we're talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, that is a miracle. Mm. Uh, but if I wake up every single morning, I grab my phone, and I immediately log onto a social media platform and my emotions, my mood is altered by that. That's a distraction. That's setting up the day in the wrong way. And I'm, I'm guilty of this just as much as everybody else. We tend to really, really love uh, being emotive about something. We love to be angered or be happy about something. Yeah. And right now we're chasing that through social media. Uh, which can be a, a huge distraction. I mean, one of, the, one of the tools that we use in public health whenever we're um, working on diet is we ask folks to log everything they've ate for a day, do it for seven days, and then calculate their carbs, their calories, and see where the patterns are. What yeah. if for seven days you log every single interaction you have on social media, and at the eighth day you look back and say, is this really who I am? I yelled yeah. at someone I don't even see every five years because I've disagreed with them. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that a useful, uh, useful uh, time? It's it, it, probably not. I remember doing a 30-day uh, social media fast. Oh, beautiful. And it was better than any fast you can imagine. Like, yep. Honestly, oh, I, I uh, just felt so much more clarity. Yep. Yeah, it was... And when you go back to it, you're like, oh, this is all crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually deleted them off my phone, even the apps, everything. And uh, it was amazing because every now and then my phone's here next to me. Every now and then I would pick up my phone ready yeah. to 
Okay. Oh, it's not on there. <laughs> That's just habit, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, like it or not, I think you're, you are a role model for, you know, people around you and uh, future generations. And you'll probably end up having kids one day. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Um, uh, is that something that's the forefront of your mind when you go about your day to day life, like being a role model? Uh, absolutely not. I'm the hundred percent no. opposite. Uh, I, and this is true. I'm not, you know, just saying things yeah. every day. Um, if I don't believe that I'm like, I'm the luckiest man in the world, I ask why. If I walk into the room and I think I'm smarter than everybody, I've already failed. Um, you, you cannot continue to drive yourself to be ambitious, to uh, succeed in your next venture if you're content or if you recognize yourself as a status. Now, that doesn't mean that you are not setting goals for yourself so you do become a role model. Um, to, to me, a role model means that my house, my kitchen, my roof is open to you whenever you need it. Um, I can share with you what I've learned from my experiences, uh, but that doesn't mean that you abide by it. It's, um, it, to me, in my opinion, uh, that's a slippery slope because it can lead to being uh, complacent and content with things the way they are. And feed your ego in a way. Yeah. You know, subconsciously or actively, sometimes that happens without your knowledge. And you say, hey, I succeeded at this thing, you know, right on. I'm take a little break, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's just not, not the way I'm on. Well, I could embarrass you and go through all the achievements that you've had since you were a kid. Cause I think I've got a list of them. Uh, but I, I won't, I won't. Cause I know you don't like that, but I know you represented, uh, like you were, you played representative, uh, soccer or football. Um, you know, you, you got your scholarship to do a university. You did a lot of, uh, good things, you know, and, and I remember when I met you in Hawaii, you were working nights, you know, um, teaching as well as doing your degree and you know doing a lot of great things for the community but you've generally excelled in what you've done uh, do you think that comes from an attitude of humility where you've always felt like you're, you're in a constant um i suppose uh, mindset of learning yeah i really think that it and i i don't mean to harp on on this it really stemmed from being born in iraq and moving to the u.s okay it, it's never enough. It's whatever is next to challenge, let's do it. Uh, yeah. The so-called successes that I've encountered uh, in my life, they're very minuscule and anybody, anybody, anybody can do the same. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is when folks use, oh, he's or she's smarter than me, therefore that's why they're successful. That's, that's, a, that's a mirage. That's nothing more than an excuse. Uh, there is no such thing as they're smarter than me is how many hours are they putting in? How many hours am I putting in? If it takes them 15 hours to get something done, it may take me 25. So be it, it'll take me 25. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but it's- No, uh, no, it's good. Look, yeah. I'll, I'll, share, I'll share something with you. Um, I remember in my younger days, like late teens, probably early 20s, whenever I felt uh, like life was getting too difficult or you know, my version of tough times, I heard about a guy who was a gentleman in the Gulf War, and it's it's a pretty devastating example, but this is a true story. I don't know his name, but one of my uncles told me about him. And he was a man like he was living in a house, just like we used to live in a house in Mosul, where your whole family was there. Mm -hmm. And throughout the Gulf War, he went out to, I think the shops or somewhere, 
came back and his house was bombed. So he lost his entire family. And I'm talking kids. He, I think he was a man in his 50s, roughly. He lost his kids. I think a couple of grandkids, his parents, brothers, sisters, gone in one hit. And, uh, and he was someone that did not go insane or try to kill himself, but it continued on in the community. And I heard that he, he said that, well, obviously God's got me here for a certain reason, so I've got to carry on. So whenever I had, uh, you know, whenever I thought life was tough, I remember that man's example. And I know there'd be many like him in our, in, in, uh, back in Iraq that have gone through devastating things and all they want to do is just survive and live a good life. And if they had the 25% of our luxuries, what would they do with it? Uh, You and I are in the age of um, fighting men. So if our fathers and our mothers didn't leave Iraq, you and I probably would be involved in the ISIS conflict. Yeah. uh, Because we're, you know, we're sort of adult age men. Uh, We're uh, probably recruited, drafted and, who knows? We could have been uh, in the first wave of uh, uh, of Exodus. We could have been yeah. executed because we're males, and we're Christians uh, because we're fighting male, uh, fighting age males. Mm. We could have joined the armed conflict to take Mosul back. All that was avoided because our dads and our moms took us out. So, how many of us are there there that would kill for half the opportunity? Exactly. No, such a good point, man. Um, well, let's talk about Iraq. I know you were featured in an article um, uh, where you spoke about the invasion of ISIS, the genocide that occurred in 2014. Um, I want to know from you what you found out through your studies, but also want to. But my first question is: Is that what inspired you to further your studies in public health, or just coincidental? Uh, sort of on the way. Uh, when I was doing my masters, uh, you have to sort of declare a project, uh, a volunteer project, or a thesis. Okay. And I chose a thesis and I came across um, wonderful committee members who had a data set for me to work on. And it so happened to be uh, the Iraqi body count, uh, which, you know, for those that are listening and are watching, the next segment is going to be very, very sad, but it is, it is what it is. It's reality. Uh, exactly. It is a data set of every single armed conflict event that resulted in a civilian death in Iraq. It's, uh, I think it's out of, uh, London, it's an independent organization that keeps track of all the deaths uh, as a result of armed conflict. Uh, my job was as an Arabic speaker who understands the geography of Iraq to tag each event with a province. So Iraq has 18 provinces or governors, I'm not sh- sure exactly the English word for it, but yeah. each event gets tagged to a location. After I did that, I was able to determine which locations experienced more violence and which locations in- experience less violence. Then I took that and used it to um, analyze how war and how armed conflict uh, affects education. And it's one of those things where in your head, you're like, well, duh, armed conflict reduces the opportunity for education. But Mm -hmm. my job was to empirically with academic evidence, prove it. And I found out that areas with high conflict regressed the levels of education up to five years, sometimes right. 10 years. So wow. you, had, you had kids and, uh, not kids, you had adults in their 30s, 40s, or 20s, and they still have only an elementary school education. Wow. Uh, 
and I adjusted for things like the wealth of the family, the gender, the age, so that all these factors are counted in. Mm. Um, all, all that to say that the that that project was really really um, eye opening because when you go through the list, uh, it's very somber because you're tagging each person and it's a human being that died. And one yeah. of the lines was the street that I was born in and my neighborhood. And it happened in 2003 and I remembered it because we left in 2004. Wow. And I still have, you know, we both still have family there. So it's, um, it, it was very sad to say, but it's something that is not given its due attention. Um, in 2014, 15, 16, 17, when all that happened, uh, you had an active genocide. You have an exodus from land that had Christians in it and its native inhabitants for thousands of years. And all of a sudden there are zero mm. inhabitants there. Uh, you had folks that were told you either can, you know, convert, pay a tax or the sword, you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, you had this extreme uh, terrorism come into the country, yet it was not the world didn't react enough fast enough, in my opinion, to, to prevent oh. some of those deaths. It, it, it was a tragedy and it's continuing. I mean, it's not, we're not scot-free here. I mean, it's, no. it, it's still there. No, I mean, I, I spoke to Father Douglas Albazi, who was, you know, one of the priests that was kidnapped, uh, I think it was 2006, but he was also there when ISIS came in. And I mean, he talked about all these agencies that just came in and said, we'll do all this, we'll help you, we'll, we'll do this. And they're, they're from different organizations. And he said he, he had like a, a wall with all their business cards, you know, and then he just saw them once and never came back. And then what, what frustrated me more than anything was the, the lack of media attention. Um, you know, I was going around churches in uh, different parts of Australia speaking just to bring awareness to it and just to raise some funds just so, because my uncle was there at the time, the Archbishop, and I said to him, what do you guys need? Like, is there anything we can do to help? I mean, do you need us to send clothes? He said, well, funds is what we need so that we can put people in shelter. So, all right, well, let's start raising funds. Let's start doing that because um, the good old Obama and, uh, and I can talk about this for the next three hours, but the Obama and uh, Biden administration at the time did absolutely nothing. You know, they, and uh, they, they, they just, they got a lot of blood on their hands, those people, and they did nothing about it. So it was left to the churches to actually try to fix the mess in, in a, at a bill. Yeah. And what you said right there is the key for me, the personal responsibility that you took on and went to churches. We as immigrants, especially the first generation, we cannot wash our hands from responsibility. Now, some folks are able to give, some folks are able to distribute on social media after mm -hmm. running on social media previously, but uh, each person is able to contribute something, even if it is just a prayer. As Christians, we believe that prayer is the biggest weapon that you have. Correct. Are you praying for the Christians in Iraq? If that's the most that you can give, so be it. Uh, mm. But if, you know, politics, government, media, got the media, but it all starts and ends with us. If we're not going to take action, why, should, why the hell should the media care? Yeah. And we're from there. Yeah, very true, buddy. Um, is there anything else you can give us an update on what's happened in Iraq, like in Erbil? Or have you, have you completed your studies with that? 
Yeah, I've, I haven't touched that bag. I'd love to. Uh, one of the things I really want to do is uh, examine the impact of ISIS. I mean, uh, it's trivial in terms of numbers. Everybody knows it. But the amount of Christians in Iraq pre-2003, you know, somewhere around 7 8% of the population. And now it's mostly extinct except for villages and, you know, northern Iraq. Um, there are some folks that are still there. They're trying to rebuild. But the impact of ISIS that it had on not only the immediate exodus, but also the destruction of basically the history of how many churches were burned, how many old artifacts, how many books, mm. um, priceless books that if they were in the West, they'd be guarded by a hundred men. Um, they would be in museums with, with, with locks and they were thrown to the ground and just destroyed. Uh, I'd love to, to, to get back to that. It's, um, it's in your blood and you, you can't let that go. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so, uh, have you always had an interest in health? Yeah, I originally, you know, <laughs> Iraqi kid, uh, what are you told? Be a doctor. So <laughs> <laughs> either a doctor or engineer, I believe those are the two only choices that you have. Uh, uh, I always had an interest in health and, uh, public health seemed to be the opportunity to make the most impact, uh, because it's a population level study. It's not an individual level. Okay. Um, and what about, uh, I mean, I think you've already answered this question. I, I was going to ask you about role models, but other than your father, is there, is there people that you met along the way that became a, a great role model for you? Uh, definitely. I mean, I've had uh, uh, my, my current boss, my committee members who are just aspirational. Uh, one person that is always in the back of my mind is um, Archbishop Rahul. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's uh, for those that don't know, he's he was the Archbishop of Mosul, I believe, early thousands. He was um, given that title uh, in 2000. I want to say eight. He was kidnapped uh, from from church after a service, put in a trunk, shot and uh, taken away. He called the church from his cell phone and told them, don't give them any money for my ransom because it will be used for evil deeds. Mm. I mean, how do you as a human and he was an archbishop so he was holier than you know most but how do you as a human knowing that your life will end say don't give them money because it'll be used for evil deeds and he was one of those figures and there are a lot of them your uncle's one of them too that um no my, my uncle got his job right he refused to secede an inch of ground to, to give up the heritage, to give up the faith, to give up all of these things. And just imagine the pressure, a daily pressure. You don't know if you're driving from church to the supermarket, if you're going to get kidnapped. And mm. he never, he never took a step back. And his death was widely condemned. You know, it became a huge um, story, but he's, he's the one that gave me my first communion. He married. Oh, really? Yeah. He married my parents. I have pictures of him. He's a, wow. he was a wonderful, warm, funny, idol and it's uh i'm very sorry that i won't be able to visit him yeah yeah well maybe one day we can go back and visit the people that left behind now yeah um what would you i know what i'd like to see eventually happen in iraq but do you think uh it can happen or what do you think needs to happen do you see any hope there for for us to have a safe haven yeah, I mean, uh, this is going to be, this might be a little bit controversial, but hey, it's all opinions here. Um, 
one of the bright spots uh, that is happening right now is the acceptance of critique of the government. Uh, Wait, say that again. Uh, acceptance of critique of government. That yeah. the idea of the uh, of the government is not the all-knowing, uh, all-be-all. Uh, one of my favorite uh, figures to follow, and some people don't like him because they don't think he's funny or he might have a political leaning, but um, his, na his name is Ahmed Bashir. He's the guy who makes the Bashir show. Uh, he was the first comedian to make a John Stewart-like satirical show that constantly critiques and makes fun of political figures. Imagine doing that in Iraq, <laughs> where you use comedy, uh, you use sort of prevalent news in order to tell the population that, hey, this is not okay. Corruption is not okay. Uh, excluding one sect because of their religion is mm. not okay. The more that happens, the more we divorce government from religion, and this is coming from a very religious guy, divorcing government from religion in the Middle East has to be the first step. Well, Otherwise, we're going to end up the same exact place that we are. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So both, we, we talked about this before, both you and your wife work in the public health field and I think you used to teach together back in Hawaii. Um, how did you guys make that work as a couple? Because I know for some couples, um, you know, they probably feel like they need more space or they need, but I think you guys, are, and that's where I connected with you is that, you know, I go with my wife everywhere. I don't, I don't have boys nights and all this sort of rubbish and all that crap, I don't need time away from my wife because that's my best friend. Exactly. So, and uh, we've worked together on projects and business. You know, we help, I've helped her and stuff. She's helped me out a lot. Um, she has a, you know, she's a lawyer. She's a, she's a very smart woman. Uh, you married a very smart woman. Um, but what could you say, like, uh, um, how, do, how do you guys make that work? Well, we constantly, uh, we constantly check in with each other and we constantly have a plan. Uh, we, like you said, uh, I worked so hard to convince her to marry me. Why would I, <laughs> why would I step away from that? Uh, and come away, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is especially prevalent for, uh, for youth, and this applies to everyone, including myself. Um, your standards for your partner has to be true. You yourself have to understand those standards and know them, <laughs> and then you have to apply them. Uh, more importantly, if you are not able to live by their standards, then you're not doing your job. And this is a little bit controversial nowadays. You can't say this anymore, but um, as a man who is trying to convince your wife that you can be the man for her, that you can be that, that force that she can, she can use, she can, she can lean on, she can, um, that you have to, you have to make that a priority in your life. If, if your partner is secondary and their happiness is secondary, then your relationship is secondary. So what else can you expect from it other than trouble? Uh, we, um, my wife and I went through periods where um, we'd be okay eating dollar meals, meals at McDonald's because we were planning for a brighter future. Before our wedding, we took a side job cleaning dorms, cleaning beds and toilets. And both of us had zero problem with it because we were planning for the future. Uh, it was not beneath us to do anything in order to make the next year of our relationship and future better and better and better. Brilliant. You guys met at, met at school or where? Uh, we met at our youth group in Hawaii, uh, Newman Center, our Catholic church. Yeah. Uh, we met through that youth group and, you know, things like that are so important for, for Christian youth. 
these groups are really, really fundamental in, in, in everyday life. I've, I've had people say that youth groups are, is a good place to meet uh, people. <laughs> Work for me. <laughs> so you just touched on like a church and like how, how has, um, I suppose we could talk about this for quite a while, but how has faith played a role in your life? Oh, hundred percent driver uh, of many aspects. Um, everybody goes through periods where you're doubting or you're not practicing as much as you should, or you're not giving as much as you should. And if you're not going through those periods, you're not a Christian. Uh, if you're not doubting and if you're not questioning, your faith is uh, superficial in my opinion. Mm. Um, faith really has been a cornerstone. It was a red line for uh, the person that I will marry. And it was the same thing for Maggie. It, it, it had to be someone who believes. Uh, it has to be someone who, and this is the most important part, you can recite the entire Bible. If you're not practicing what it's saying, it means nothing. You think that at the end of your days, you're going to go to Jesus and say, hey, I can, I can tell you what you said. He's going to say, okay, great. Or what did you do with it? Uh, you know, you can, um, you can be a practicing Catholic, but if you're not practicing Catholicism, what's it all for? Will you, will you ever take up acting? Acting? The profession of acting? Yeah. No. I was just going to say, because if you get, grow your hair longer. Uh, careful there. Careful there. <laughs> I was going to say it. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, how, how have you changed um, as a person from the person that started university maybe five, six, seven years ago? Uh, good question. I, I think, um, yes, when I, when my freshman year in my undergrad, uh, I really, just as is with any kind of youth, you, you struggle with your identity. Are you an American or are you an Iraqi? Uh, you, do you embrace the culture and fit in or do you keep your rigid practices? Mm. Um, I really had to kind of find uh, the middle ground between both. Uh, I think whenever you move to a new place, you have to do that. You cannot lose who you are, but you also cannot not adapt to the new place. Um, personally, when I went into undergrad, I had um, not as sort of a disciplined approach to my goals. Um, and I did graduate in four years, but if going back, I could finish it in two years if I had more disciplined approach to what I wanted to do. Uh, a lot of college years are wasted uh, based on a major that folks are not even happy with. And I'm entering my 90th in academia. And I can tell you, most of it can be condensed if you have a plan. Um, right. You know, it's- uh, you've, done it, you've done it fairly quickly, relatively yeah, and, speaking. And anybody, like I said before, anybody who puts in the time can do it. There is no such thing as, uh, there are such things as higher IQ, I give you that, but uh, higher IQ just means that it'll take you five hours, it'll take me 10. <laughs> that's true, that's, that's a good point. Um, and uh, what do you think um, your purpose is right now? Like you're, you're now in Colorado, you've got, you're married, you've got your home, you've got everything, everything uh, your life's ahead of you now, but what's, what's your main goal or I suppose purpose? 
my sort of immediate goal is to make sure that my family is set, uh, that we have a, a setting that is comfortable. Um, my sort of long-term goal, which is always the case, is to make sure that when folks talk about, hey, I met a guy who was born in Iraq, or I met a Christian guy, that I try hard to provide a good example of that. I do not want to be used in a sentence where it says, hey, I met a guy from Iraq, and he's a jerk. Or I met a Christian, and he's not a practicing Christian. Yeah. Uh, those would be detrimental uh, to, to my future, and I really try to have those as a future goal, ongoing goal. Is there any particular habits that you think you could pinpoint that um, contributed to you, 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 su you succeeding what you did, what you've done so far? Yeah, financially, um, uh, and I'm a bit of a OCD about this, um, budgeting has to be a key component of any planning. Uh, and that's budgeting financially and budgeting for your time. Uh, we have 24 hours a day, eight of them are asleep, say eight of them are working, um, nine, nine of them are working. The rest of the time, what are you doing in order to tomorrow not regret what you didn't do yesterday? And all of us have hours that we waste. Um, it just it determines when on where and how much of it are you wasting. In terms of financially, uh, if you know how much money is coming in, but you don't know exactly where it's going out you're going to fall behind and or you may not succeed at as much as you can potentially hmm. budgeting financially has to be done in order to have a sound household that plans for emergencies that has capability of withstanding trouble and life will give you trouble no matter who you are very good did anyone teach you that because that's that's not what we're taught at school no no it's not honestly it's from uh uh, you, you know, you, you want to be independent from your parents financially so that you don't add a burden to them. Uh, that, you, you know what I'm talking about? The best thing that you could do for your parents is not to take money from them. Correct. <laughs> and I'm sure they would agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, having uh, your debit card uh, be rejected is truly one of the best experiences you can have because you never want that feeling ever again. Yeah, absolutely. And look, what you're doing there is fantastic because by actually taking ownership of your finances, you're eliminating a big stress that I think 90% of people deal with every day. Because uh, one of my old mentors, he said to me, if you don't control your finances, your finances control you, they consume you. Yeah. And it becomes like, it's, it's well-known fact that it's one of the main causes of divorce, you know, yeah. finance problems. So by you taking ownership of that is fantastic because you're setting yourself up for you know, great habits for your future and, and, and your future kids. <laughs> I know you mentioned for, uh, you know, four years ago, but one of the things that you uh, told me, uh, which Megan and I constantly talk about is you, you mentioned that it, it shouldn't be a shame or an idea of shame that you are chasing more money so that you can do more with it for your community. I remember that exact conversation because you were talking about your responsibility to give some of your income to those that need it. We as Christians and we as good people uh, should do that. The more you can give is based on how much you can make and how much you financially schedule. Well, the thing is, and why I said that is because I learned that from people that were uh, somewhat wealthy and I saw what impact they could do. To, I mean, I mean all, I've always believed and I, I, I learned this, all money is, is a magnifier. 
it just magnifies who you are. So if you're, an, if you're a nasty person and you get a lot of money, you'll be a much more nasty person. But if you're a good person and you get a lot of money, you do a lot more good. That's, that's all it is. And when you make money that is outside the norm of just a nine to five income and just having that little bit left every week, when you make, when that gap is between your expenses is here and your, your income is there, then there's a lot you can do with that. You know, you can do things that are outside of your circle, not just, you know, paying for someone to mow the lawn or things like that and being able to actually give to people who, uh, who really need it and, and, and making a difference. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. It is. And again, the independence, the um, making sure you're not a burden financially on anyone. It's one of the best things you can do to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to pass on to your uh, kids or, <laughs> or future generations? Uh, like we talked about the youth, I suppose, that are coming through and, you know, the second generations and all that stuff. What well, we've, and I, and I know the ones that are going to listen in, they're going to get a lot out of this. But what would you like to pass on to those people coming through and even your uh, potential future kids? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I for sure will explain to them what their grandpa did uh, to, to, to get us where, where we are, not to insult his legacy, similar to how I learned it. I'd make sure to transition to them the language and the culture. Okay. Um, the Arabic and Aramaic, both of them, the history of the place where we come from and the significance of the place we are in right now. That is key. Uh, you cannot only talk about what was because for them, they will never know what that's like. They know what it is now. So you kind of have to find a way to merge the two. And I think the most important thing I hope to pass on is the value of a dollar. And I don't mean that in a greedy sort of money is my God way, but in terms of um, if I work for say $15 an hour and then I go somewhere and I spend $20 an hour, whatever I just spend my money on is worth more than an hour and some change of my work. Is it worth it? That, yeah. that value is fundamental for success. If you just throw your money around at senseless things, you're actually sacrificing your own work hours and your own labor. Yeah. And you're not putting value on yourself. Yeah. And I think why I had that conversation going back to when I met you in Hawaii is because I, I believe for a long time and, you know, I've been, I grew up in church as well. There was a, I had this conflict in my head when I got out of high school and I went to university of, cause I knew I wanted to be successful in what I did. Uh, and I knew, and I was scared to say the words, I want to make a lot of money. Cause I thought, cause uh, there was something, there was this guilt that I had because I, I maybe mis misunderstood what the church and the Bible teaches, because, you know, they say things like happy are those who are poor for they have a place in, you know, heaven and things like that. And, and I associated struggle and poverty with, uh, you know, divine, uh, I suppose, privilege almost. Uh, and um, there's a long time where I had that conflict. And then when I realized, well, hang on a sec, if I'm successful, what I'm doing naturally, I'm going to make more money. All it is, is a measure of your success. So there's yeah, absolutely... that's a very, uh, in my opinion, a misunderstood concept. Um, you know, there's a, it's easier for a camel to go through a, uh, an eye of a needle than a wealthy man. Uh, mm. The lesson there is the activity of the wealthy man that is preventing them from going to heaven. 
it's not a dollar amount. It's not like you make, okay, I have $10,000 in my bank account. I have 10,001, cha-ching, you're sent down to hell. No, it's, <laughs> it's the actions that you take with whatever money that, that you have. It, it doesn't matter the amount. It matters what you're doing with it. Absolutely. No, very good. Well, we've got to wrap up soon. I, I, could, I know I could talk to you for hours because um, I always enjoy my conversation with you. And it's, it's been too long, that's for sure. Yep, for sure. Yeah, um, uh, before we let you go, is there anything particular you wanted to, uh, I suppose, bring up? or? Uh, just that, again, whatever goal that you have has to be worthy of yourself. Whatever potential that you set for yourself, screw that. Make a new potential. Go higher. And if you are the reason why you're not reaching that, then that's a failure. If someone else or some other circumstances, fine, go around it. But if you're the reason why, you have to fix that. Oh, beautiful, sir. I'll ask you one last question that I ask all the guests that are on the show. Um, and this is not so, this is quite recent for you, I suppose. But what are you now, late 20s? Are you approaching 30? Yeah, yeah late 20s, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Catching up to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll give you a time machine you can go back in time visit your 18 year old self and you've got um, five minutes with him to give him some advice what would you say to 18 year old Fadi I would give him the address to where my wife lived and told him hey oh. <laughs> it, it took too long <laughs> is that all you'd do yep that's all I would do <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the funniest thing I've heard in a while. <laughs> and how's she going? Is she's she's good. She's enjoying. Yeah, I mean, we're we're both work in the same department. She's working with health disparities, um, so she she's loving her job. It's uh, it's one of those things where I work with her, I live with her, so it's it's awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. So, uh, and uh, anything you can tell us about the progress of just before we let you go in terms of. The situations with COVID now in America, because I know America right now is—I didn't—I probably should have brought this up earlier, but you got some craziness going on with the election right now. You know, all, all these court cases going on, and you've got COVID to deal with. What's, what's, uh, where are we at right now? Uh, right now, the U.S. is seeing record number every single day of cases, uh, okay. and more worrisome, we're seeing a lot more hospitalizations. So remember, the whole thing about this is to protect the hospitals so that. Um, hospitals are able to give care uh, right now it's it looks like to be if not the highest peaks it's getting there uh, so it's a little bit about hands on deck um, and it's there are a lot of distractions happening which dilutes the message of public health and it puts public health in a difficult position uh, because we're seen uh, even though we don't we're seen as policymakers. that's that's not our job public health really? people are we're like the weathermen we tell you Today, there are this many cases. It is up to you to make the decision if you want to go out, if it's raining or not. Yeah, good, good. And what's it like? What's the mood like with uh, all the craziness of the election going on? Uh, I think, and this is probably good to bring up, uh, I think there's either extreme jubilation or extreme anger uh, or extreme uh, feeling of defeat. Um, I, I know about politics as much as the next person. Um, I despise politics. I can talk about them because I'd like to educate myself about them. Mm. But as Christians, especially, and I'm speaking because I am a Christian, um, mm. our, we answer to one person. 
And if we lose track of that and we depend on people to give us what we want that we should be getting from that one person, we're losing the battle. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're not active, that you're not knowing what's happening, that you're not doing your part. But you vote one day of the year. You're a Christian 365 days of the year. Good. Beautiful. Well, no, no, we'll leave it. That's beautifully said, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wish you absolutely, you know, every blessing that you could uh, possibly experience. And hopefully the borders uh, open up soon and you can, you know, get your butt over here to Australia or, you know, we'll, we'll come visit the beautiful uh, mountain ranges of Colorado. Absolutely. And I'm really humbled to be on, on this podcast with an incredible amount of guests. I look forward to your future guests because, wow. My pleasure. Uh, God bless you, buddy. Talk soon. Yeah. Thank you.